Welcome to The Human Advantage, a podcast from the Centre for Army Leadership, which explores the more personal and tactical applications of leadership. In each episode, we meet someone who's experienced the highs and lows of leading, in situations ranging from major combat operations to challenges in barracks. We explore what they've learned about leadership to help our junior leaders prepare for success on operations today and in the future. I'm your host, Ash Bardwaj, a journalist and broadcaster and a British Army Reserve captain with the rifles. In this episode, we learn how leaders can promote a vision that brings stakeholders along. The type of leadership styles, it's not very authoritative. I can't go there and tell people what to. I need to say to people, come with me, show them the vision and start engaging with people you know in your own network, but also outside your network as well to say, let's do this. I think showing the way is one of my top tips for leaders to try and deliver change. Something physical that is tangible that they can see. It's not just a conceptual thing. And that often helps drive the whole campaign and project forward. And why efforts at promoting diversity must be considered on a case-by-case basis. We have to, as leaders, be mindful that it doesn't have a detrimental impact on the individual, because a lot of the time you'll find that these individuals just want to serve, just want to do their job, just like everyone else. Major Daljinder Singh Verdi, MBE, commissioned into the Royal Army Medical Corps in 2015 as a pharmacist, professionally qualified reserve officer. After a few years of regimental duty with 256 Field Hospital, he re-rolled as a medical support officer and later went into full-time reserve service, or FTRS. He has since worked in staff roles at Headquarters Regional Command, generating forces for deployments and generating policy and guidance to aid in community engagement and recruiting. Along the way, he developed engagement guides with certain British communities and even codified the dress code for Sikh soldiers. In this episode, we explore the power of staff work in cultural change and the challenges of teamwork and leadership in the policy environment. I started by asking Dal about why he decided to join the Army Reserve when he already had a stable career as a pharmacist. My career as a pharmacist was chosen for me as a young Asian boy from West London. These were my parents' aspirations for me to pursue a professional career. And it comes from a good place. They want the children to educate themselves and do well. And for me, I really thought when I get to the top of this pillar, once I qualify, it's going to be this magical light bulb epiphany moment and that's it, I've made it and life will be merry from there. Lots of challenges along the way. It's five years of intense education, in-hospital training, qualified at the age of 23. The NHS, amazing organisation, but I was burnt out. At that point, I was thinking, I'd seen people on their deathbed, I'd seen people die in front of me. And really at that point, I thought, hang on. I'm going to live, work and die here. I don't want this. I want to actually go and travel the world, go do something exciting, have some stories of my own to tell. So when it's my turn to come into this bed, I've lived a whole colourful life and then it's my turn. So yeah, that was really my main motivation to do something different. And why the army specifically? So I met the army at a careers fair and the idea was kind of implanted in my head at that moment. I have uh, some family history. So we have a great granddad who served during World War II. And, and being Sikh, ultimately, my faith background, my ethnic background, we're known as martial race, where we've got these concepts of being a saint soldier in our faith. So all these things come together. It's kind of led me down this path. Whilst you were working as a pharmacist within the NHS, did you have any specific leadership challenges there that maybe became useful for you as a lesson when you then moved into the army? Leadership in, for clinical professionals, I think, is an interesting space because um, you are taught uh, lots of knowledge around uh, specific technical things around medicine and people, but they don't really teach you leadership. Leadership is something you do in a lecture 
once and one term somewhere and then suddenly you go into the NHS where you're leading a team and you have the authority because you hold a qualification, you hold the knowledge, but you don't necessarily understand how to lead at this team. I used to work with pharmacy technicians who were there for the last 25 odd years, really experienced in what they do, know how to do it. And managing those as a young 23 year old, it was quite difficult. I would describe it as very similar to the young lieutenant managing senior NCO kind of relationship. I had the authority, but I didn't have the experience and I didn't have their trust and respect yet. And I think as a young age, if I reflect on it now, I think I took things very personally and as a personal attack if people challenged me. And I think that's something in the army which has kind of transformed my thinking really about leadership. Uh, it's made me more self-aware. So you spent time as an officer pharmacist in regimental duty, but then you chose to re-roll as a medical support officer. Why did you choose to do that and how does the role differ? As a clinician, as a professionally qualified officer, my focus was very much delivery for the patient. It was sort of facing inwards to a specific task, a specific mission. I was more interested in the big picture. I think the type of personality I am, the things that interest me, the things that give me that little boost of energy is big picture stuff, dream big. So for me, I started after a few years of regimental duty, a few years going out with a field hospital. I just felt slightly frustrated. I wanted to kind of do things that were non-pharmacy related. And the amazing thing about the army is that it gives you this opportunity to re-roll. If you've got the skills, you've got the experience, you can you can go to a board and apply to re-roll. So the MSO role allowed me to improve my skills as a staff officer, allowed me to kind of go on to courses which I wouldn't be able to as a PQO. So it's allowed me to continue this kind of self-development journey. So PQO is a professionally qualified officer, like a doctor, a pharmacist, yep. a lawyer, a chaplain. You're doing something called full-time reserve service, FTRS. For those that aren't familiar with the term, can you explain how that differs to being a regular officer and why you chose that rather than becoming a regular officer? So FTRS allows individuals who commission in the reserves to join on a fixed term contract. So they can be either a home commitment contract, limited commitment or a full commitment contract to conduct roles that the army ultimately finds difficult to fill with regular personnel. Offers a wide range of roles, so E1, E2 roles, so they're broad in terms of what you can do. And for me, I kind of came into the army as a PQI reservist, doing way more reserve service days than my career as a pharmacist. And I was trying to find a way of how do I have a full-time career and sort of manage my home responsibilities as well. So FTRS is this really amazing kind of contract. And it's great that we have these kind of tiers of contracts with the army that we can have this opportunity to dial it up and dial down our service. So FTRS for me ultimately allows me to have a full-time career with the army, allows me to continue my reserve professional career development, but ultimately allows me to choose where I go. So it's not necessarily a career. You are your own agent. You have to find your own roles. You know, I risk every two years of being jobless, but the opportunity to choose where I go and manage my own career where I want to go is quite uh, rewarding. I do get some regular friends of mine who are quite jealous uh, of what I get to do. And a lot of the roles that you've done have been as a staff officer. How do you turn a policy or a strategy into behavioural change? So you're identifying a, a challenge or a problem and you want to move an organisation in a particular direction and that re- requires individuals to change what they're doing. That's quite a difficult process. You're not having that direct command authority or that immediate face-to-face leadership where you are motivating somebody in person to do something they may not otherwise do. You're trying to do it through policy. How do you make that happen? Have you got any examples of where you've 
try to implement change and you've had to go through certain steps to actually make it happen? One of the examples that comes to mind is a project that I was doing to support a communities engagement officer from four brigades. So she'd been in touch. She said, Dal, got a local Sikh community here. We want to engage with them. Please, can you just give me some advice? So I started writing loads of staff work for her. And then it kind of dawned on me. I said, well, hang on, why am I just doing this for one RPOC, one place when we can create something that we can share across all RPOCs, across recruiting group and area. An RPOC is? An RPOC is the regional point of uh, command. So the UK split up into different RPOCs and each one has its own headquarters. So that was where there was a light bulb moment, innovation moment, where we came up with this concept of creating from the network, the DNI networks, what we've called now the British Army Seek Engagement Guide, how to engage specifically with the Sikh community. So it's targeted messaging, it's messaging to help those people who have never met a Sikh before understand the faith, the motivators, things that we do to support Sikhs in the armed forces. And, and the amazing thing about this project was we're not just doing it for Sikhs now, we're doing this for all different types of ethnic groups. But trying to deliver that change as a staff officer, that was the challenge. You know, How do I get this vision that's in my head? How do I now share it? Uh, and bring stakeholders in to try and deliver it. It's still an ongoing challenge. Uh, I wouldn't say I've solved it, but I think the key thing is, first thing is write down, write down your plan. You, you need to share your vision. You need to articulate it. So they always say that a plan written down is 50% of the problem, right? So articulating it to yourself, writing a briefing note, really explaining what's the objectives here, how does this fit into the bigger picture, uh, use the same language, of, for example, the, the new campaigns are engaged to recruit. So these are campaigns that are going on across the army. So how does what I'm trying to do, this idea, fit into the bigger picture? These are some of the questions I was asking myself. And once I'd produced that operational sort of staff work to, to cement what the vision is, it's about sharing it, bringing stakeholders together. So the type of leadership styles, again, it's not very authoritative. I can't go there and tell people what to. I need to say to people, come with me, show them the vision, say, hey, this is where I think we need to go and start engaging with people, you know, in your own network, but also outside your network as well to say, let's do this. So, yeah, I think showing the way is one of my top tips for leaders to, to try and deliver change, to create something, show people, give them an idea, give them a vision, something physical that is tangible that they can see. It's not just a conceptual thing. And that often helps drive the whole campaign and project forward. First of all, you developed the concepts and how they related to the objectives of the organization that asked you to develop these ideas in the first place then you put it down in a plan so that it was very clear how they linked together and within that plan there were specific steps advice tactics if you like on how to engage and then you went and spoke to the people who were delivering it so they could understand how it would benefit them how it tied into their objectives and within that, you had to build new relationships in order to make it happen. This is it. So some of the comments I got once I started sharing things, you know, we've been wanting, we've been asking for this for years. One of the challenges I find ownership is really difficult, especially in the staff world, trying to get people to own a product, own the delivery of something. Everyone is busy upon busy. We're, we're all getting squeezed for our outputs, especially change projects and delivering something new. I think that's an extra step of uh, resistance you get where it's difficult to, to try and get people to own it. I think one of the leadership techniques I use is just to inspire them, show them the vision, show it how it helps them, how it benefits them. And the specific behaviour that you're using to do that is stepping out from beyond the computer screen, picking up a telephone and speaking to them, or even going in person to go and see them and talk it through with them and giving them a physical product. Because 
particularly when it comes to staff work, we receive a lot of emails every day. And it's very easy for that to just become text on a page. But if you go there in person, speak to them in person, that's where you can have that sort of inspirational element. But you're also giving them a physical product, an aid memoir. So call it cheeky. One of the things I used to do was leave a draft version on people's desks so that they could actually see it in the office. So when you're working in a busy headquarters, trying to get talk time with senior officers is sometimes difficult. Um, so what I would do is leave leave a draft copy on their desk, put a little post-it note, or bring it up in a conversation. If I'm talking about coffee, if they ask me what's going on, Dal, uh, what you've been up to, these are the types of conversations that, again, flag up so that they can then champion and raise at their levels these concepts as well. So that's another technique that I, I've employed. Well, the other thing that you do with that is you also give them a sense of ownership because they're part of the draft process they're developing ideas themselves and then they're adding to it and adding their own insights and thoughts and in doing so they generate a sense of ownership over it so it's not just your mission now it's also theirs precisely so getting people at my level other so2s together trying to do planning conferences is another good way of bringing people along with you on this journey win-win i would say one of the things that we need to always keep in our mind is to highlight the win-win and let people know that, look, by doing this, you're winning, we're winning, everyone's winning. And I think that's really important. So we've been looking very much at the operational into strategic delivery of leadership there. Have there been any particularly challenging days in leadership for you at a more tactical and personal level, more direct? And how have you dealt with those? On a really personal level, one really challenging leadership day that I had was on an overseas exercise where we had a soldier who had sort of broken the alcohol policy rules and I was woken up at three, four in the morning, told that Dow, one of your soldiers is kicking off, you need to come down and sort it out. He was one of my soldiers, so I needed to deal with this. There was a full colonel there, there were other people there. So I had to get the moral courage, tell him to stop, take him to the side and, and try and understand him, sort this out, reduce the harm to himself and others. At one point during that night, the soldier tried to take his own life and I had to intervene and stop him from doing that. It was a really sort of challenging situation we were overseas, so there were certain sort of security implications there. And as a duty holder, I had responsibility of the individual and also the wider group as well. So, yeah, it was a really challenging situation. Roller coaster of emotions because you're trying to look after the individual, you're trying to look after yourself. There's no rule book for this. You're taught in the army how to wear your uniform, how to polish your boots, and then you're suddenly thrusted into this unknown scenario that you've not ever had to deal with. In the end, the the outcome was, you know, we, we were able to calm him down. We were RTU back to the UK. We did the handover with welfare services and me and him are still good friends, even to this day. But it was definitely a challenging roller coaster of emotions. And from a leadership perspective, it really highlighted to me the fact that, firstly, whenever you're overseas, expect the unexpected. I've had a couple of incidences where you say things and you never expect things to go wrong, something will happen. So just expect it, uh, it's my tip. And also knowing your people, knowing when you before you deploy, knowing their personal circumstances, the situations, getting updates on their personal life, which might affect their performance is again, something I will definitely do before I go out again, because these things do affect people, their family lives, their personal lives affect how they perform in the job. And ultimately we're in the game of human optimization. We want to get the best of our people so we can achieve our mission. You're now working as a staff officer in diversity and inclusion. Can you tell me why that matters and can you give an example of how 
that has benefited the group that needed more inclusion and how that benefits the wider army. So I'm one of less than 10 turban-wearing Sikh officers in the British Army. Inclusion, diversity, it's affected me from day one, as soon as I walked into the recruiting office. And I would say I've been on a journey as well in terms of my understanding of what, what it meant. It's a roller coaster because sometimes you just want to do your job. You just want to be an officer. You don't really care about how you look like. You know, you've, I am who I am because of where I was born, where I come from. And a lot of the time, I just want to be a good officer. Forget the Sikh part for a second. Forget anything else, my protected characteristics. But the challenge is there's also this sense of responsibility because there's so few of us. There's lots of questions for it. So it's, it's something that ultimately affected my whole career. I think for me, inclusion is what the aim is. That's the end state that we're really going for. So I think it, in terms of the conversation, I do like the, the words that we use, the narrative we use, because it's not about if you look different anymore. It's not about the colour of your skin. It's actually about, are you part of the team? Are you included? And and that has, you know, the protected characteristics are not just your skin colour, not just your religion. There's so many more elements to it. So it's an evolving space as well. One anecdote I can share is I was on exercise with a non-UK soldier. This conversation was struck up by, I think we were by a battlefield ambulance in the middle of a desert somewhere. He was from a Caribbean country and he said to me, where some people walk, other people have to run. And I thought that was a very powerful statement. And that really, for me, cements what this is all about. It's this idea that we all start from different places and points in, uh, in life. Some people have privileges and some people don't have. But what there should be and what the aim is about equity of opportunity. We should all have the equal opportunity to be able to reach that. We, some people might have to work harder to get there. Some people might find it easy because they've had exposure or experience before. But that concept of people starting at different points, I think is really relatable when you're leading teams, because again, it comes back to the point of knowing your team and understanding that people within your team start at different points. Everyone's got different unique skill sets and being aware of that and being uh, empathetic to that, supporting their development as well. I think as leaders, we talk about developing our team and that on what does that actually mean when we talk about these conceptual things? Well, that actually means understanding where people have come from, what their, you know, let's just say, educational background might be, what their family circumstances might be, and asking them where do they want to go and how, how do you want to get there. Have you got any examples? So when I commissioned in 2014, you were given a guide at Sanders exactly how to dress for different scenarios. But as a Sikh with a turban, it just wasn't clear how I should wear my turban. What colour should it be? How to put a badge on? What does the coloured bands symbolise? Eventually, I just went on Facebook, looked at someone previous to commissioned and kind of figured out a general principle but it was always in my mind to say well there needs to be something where we're telling diverse people how they can come and join us how they should wear their dress so Sikhs wearing turbans in the British army there used to be regiments of Sikhs in the British army like the Gurkhas and so it's not a new thing but the policy is just quite broader just so Sikhs can wear turbans so what we developed through the network was a we called it the armed forces Sikh dress guide series and we codified Sikh military dress so we used historical precedent and we used precedent from looking at Sikhs from other countries. And we developed just really basic print guidelines, for example, if my turban colour should be the uh, colour of my regiment's beret. Those types of principles. If I join a new unit, just like you change the colour of your beret, I change the colour of my turban. Really simple, but it just needed to be clarified. It's a 24-page document. And what's really good as well is it informs the chain of command. So this isn't just for Sikhs. This is about people who are responsible for dress and good conduct. RSMs, for example, they found it really useful because now they have something that very clear with pictures, images, Corporal Singh, 
this is the dress expectation. Why are you not doing this? We had a few challenges. So things like we had some people who wore a beret but wanted to keep a beard and would use the Sikh faith as a justification for doing that. But we had to clarify that, no, you know, a Sikh faith and policy says if you have a turban, then you're allowed a beard. But you can't use that if you're wearing a beret. So one of the things that I've seen in the army is there's a lot of really good intent about increasing diversity and inclusion and putting people with protected characteristics at the front of what they're doing. Does that always work well or have you seen challenges as a product of that? I described this scenario as double-edged sword. For some, in some ways, it's been amazing. I've had some opportunities to, for example, support defence engagement activities overseas because of my ethnic background. So I was a, a liaison officer, for example, for a one-star. But complete counter to that, we were on exercise. So five, six days living in the field, everyone's having a miserable time, piss wet. And we had a visit from a two-star general come to see the exercise. And I was picked out and said, Dal, you've been asked to come and join the, the general for his dinner at some fancy restaurant in, in the town next door. And you can imagine I wasn't liked when I came back until everyone's asking me how it went and what happened. And they were all eating ration packs. And there I was, had a nice steak meal with the general and all that type of stuff. And if I'm honest, you know, I, I did get hate for that. I did get a lot of hate for that. And I didn't ask for that opportunity. I was told, Dal, you've been chosen. You are going. And I understand why, because they want to demonstrate the diversity of the team, et cetera, et cetera. But the impact it's had on me and my inclusion with my own unit and other fellow captains and things like that, that's been detrimental. So it's a mixed bag. To be honest, how I sort of manage this now, I'm sort of very picky about what opportunities I take. Uh, I try and say this is not about me. This is about what benefits the organisation and helps us spread the right message. So I am a bit more careful about what I put myself forward for. and try and do less of the visual stuff and more of the staff work and behind the scenes stuff because I feel I have more of an impact now. And in that way, it's less performative and more genuine change and inclusion because the example that you just gave almost accidentally creates exclusion with the best of intentions. Yeah. So this idea, you'll you're hear this a lot, people feel uh, a token, you know, tokenism, this gesture where let's wheel out Dow, let's wheel out our diversity to showcase it and I, I understand where it comes from and it comes from like you said a good honest space but we have to as leaders be mindful that it doesn't have a detrimental impact on the individual uh, because a lot of the time you'll find that these individuals just want to serve just want to do their job just like everyone else. Dal I know you've got a lot on so we're going to wrap up shortly. Uh, we always like to ask our guests how do you relax? What do you like to do with your time off? So I have a bit of a secret life. I am a music producer and DJ. So for me, music is something I grew up with. Being Punjabi, we have this amazing, rich musical culture and heritage. So I play instruments, I record music and we release music. So that is me just, just totally relaxing out and in the studio making music. It's my happy place. Let's see if we can change the soundtrack of the human advantage. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> what would you say to Second Lieutenant Verdi about leadership, given what you know now? My advice would be stop, slow down, think about what you're doing. Don't just jump in head first. Dream, dream big, have big goals, write these things down, have a plan, but act small, consistent steps, I think. Maybe it's my personality type, but I find the long, steady journeys the harder ones to do rather than the quick, big impact stuff. So I think, yeah, any advice I could give to my younger self is keep up the energy but just slow it down and just start being a bit more conscious about yourself. Major Dalverdi, thank you very much for coming to speak to us. Thank you so much. 
I found it fascinating to speak to Dal as somebody that has come from a civilian career and then come into the army and found a huge amount of reward from it, and particularly his insights about learning leadership, which doesn't exist as an actual educational strand in many civilian careers. It was also great to hear somebody speak so positively about staff work and about how that's a very powerful way to actually implement individual behavioural change and the challenges of how to actually deliver it. You can write the best staff work possible and send it out over email, but in order to actually get buy-in from the people delivering it, you have to use the techniques of leadership, setting out your vision, setting out the steps, getting buy-in, and using direct personal engagement. I also appreciated his insights on diversity and inclusion, and the point being to make the whole organisation work better, and sometimes that involves just setting out guidelines on things like seek dress. But also, as we try to improve diversity and inclusion within an organisation, recognising that we have to not accidentally exclude people or give them special privileges or make them isolated from their peers, that inclusion does involve giving everybody the same opportunities. And while sometimes we may want to promote that diversity, we have to think about how that's affecting the individual and the organisation more widely. This was an episode of The Human Advantage from the Centre for Army Leadership. It was produced and presented by Ash Bardwaj of Digital Dandy and co-produced by Lucy Ditchment of Feast Collective. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and do not represent the position of the Centre for Army Leadership, the British Army or the UK Government. Please rate and subscribe to The Human Advantage on your podcast app where you can find more episodes. If you enjoyed this episode, do send it to any friends and colleagues that you think might appreciate it, and maybe even share it on social media. For more information about developing leadership, just search online for the Centre for Army Leadership. Thanks for listening. <laughs>